Last week we looked at the fruits of the Spirit in Galatians chapter 5 and the motivational gifts of the Spirit in Romans chapter 12. Today I want to look at the manifestations or the workings of the Spirit in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. So with that said, let's read verses... First Corinthians chapter 12, verses 4 through 12. There are diversities of gifts, but the same Spirit. There are differences of ministries, but the same Lord. And there are diversities of activities, but it is the same God who works all in all. But the manifestation of the Spirit is given to each one for the profit of all. For to one is given the word of wisdom through the Spirit. To another, the word of knowledge through the same Spirit. To another, faith by the same Spirit. To another, gifts of healing by the same Spirit. To another, the working of miracles. To another, prophecy. To another, discerning of spirits to another different kinds of tongues, to another interpretation of tongues. But one and the same Spirit works all these things, distributing to each one individually as He wills. For as the body is one and has many members, but all the members of that body, being Christ, are one body, so also is Christ. Let us pray. Lord, we ask this morning, God, that You would have Your way with us. I ask now that You'd anoint me, Father, to preach and to teach Your Word in the power and in the demonstration of the Holy Ghost. God, I ask, Lord, for those here this morning that are truly blood-bought, born-again Christians, Lord, that You would continue giving us revelation concerning Your divine design for the church. Help us to understand the way You designed it to work. God, help us to uh, be willing to accept the truth of Your Word and then be obedient to it, God. Help us to be willing to accept our responsibility as individuals into the body of Christ, God, which You have called us into. Lord, I pray this morning, if there be any here, God, that are not part of the true church, that have not truly been born again, washed of their sins and cleansed by the blood of the Lamb. I pray that this morning, God, even though I be not dealing with salvation, I pray, God, that You would deal with their hearts. God, that You would take the veil off of their heart and they would see their need to come to You and that this very morning, God, they would run to You and find salvation in Christ Jesus. God, I pray that Your Word this morning would stir us, Your church, to action. God, I pray that You'd deal with our hearts. I pray that You would encourage us, Lord. God, I pray that You would help us to see truth. God, we ask that You'd have Your way with us, Lord. Help us to give You our undivided attention, Lord, in the next 30 to 45 minutes, God, of the remainder of this service, Lord. We just ask, God, for You to help us, God, to be submissive to You, to Your Word, and to receive it as You give it. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so I want to deal with the gifts, uh, the manifestations of the Spirit in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 this morning. A quick three-minute recap. If you haven't been here the last couple of weeks, we're looking at God's divine design for the true church. We're looking at the reality that if we don't understand the way something is designed to work, we are bound to live in a flawed lifestyle. If we don't know how God says it's supposed to work, 
We'll try to figure it out on our own. It's the reason most marriages fail. Over 50% of marriages within the church end in divorce. Why? Because even in the home, people are not doing it by God's design. See, God's design works every time. God's design is perfect. God's design is flawless. When we do it God's way, it always works every time. He never fails. What we're studying is God's design for the church. I mentioned in week number one that the devil has a counterfeit for everything. Everything. There's counterfeit pastors. There's counterfeit teachers. There's counterfeit evangelists. There's counterfeit gifts. There's counterfeit miracles. There's counterfeit everything you could think of. But the fact that there's something fake only proves that there's something real. The fact that there's something fake and that there is a counterfeit does not mean that the real thing is any less true. And what we want to do is be able to identify, according to the Word of God, what is true. What, what does the Bible teach about the church and what we're supposed to be? The last two weeks we have clearly identified that what the church does, it only does through the power of the Holy Spirit. Jesus said, without me you can do nothing. That the life of the church comes from the Spirit of God. Everything else will not produce real life. We looked at the fruits of the Spirit in Galatians chapter 5. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. That's where we start. If you don't have the fruits of the Spirit moving on and trying to be a pastor or trying to, to, to be a teacher or trying to do any type of thing in ministry, we'll be fruitless. Because we have to have the fruit of the Spirit first. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. These things must rule our lives before we will ever be qualified to do anything else for the kingdom of God. So we saw the fruits of the Spirit in Galatians chapter 5. Then we saw the things that motivate us in Romans chapter 12. Today I want to deal with the workings of the Spirit in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. There are diversities of gifts, but the same Spirit. There are differences of ministries, but the same Lord. There are diversities of activities, but it is the same God who works all. The manifestation of the Spirit is given to each one for the profit of all. Notice that when the Spirit does something, it's for the profit of all. This is an awesome principle that somehow God's the only one that could ever do something this great. When God's the one that does it, it benefits me and it benefits you. When it's really God's perfect fit and you're working inside the life of the living church like you're supposed to, that church will be beneficial to you, but you will be beneficial to the church. When the Spirit does something, it is profitable for all. Now notice for one is given the word of wisdom through the Spirit. We see the word of knowledge. We see the gift of faith. We see the gift of healing. We see the working of miracles. We see prophecy. We see discerning of spirits, different kinds of tongues, and the interpretation of tongues. Can I say on the outset here, anybody that has ever told you that these gifts should no longer function in the first century church is lying to you. And there are some good Bible teachers who say such things, but I will tell you on the authority of the Word of God, that teaching is foolishness. Number one, and if you don't, we have several people this morning that probably, we got a lot of new Christians. 
You don't have any idea that there's any debate on this. And then we're going to have people that have been on both sides of the aisles your whole life. So I want to deal with it fairly thoroughly. One particular school of thought is that because um, that these particular gifts, the miracles and the healing and all of this, was only so that the apostles would have their message validated. And there is some biblical precedent for that. We see that Jesus did miracles, and because He did miracles, they believed on Him. And so there's this biblical precedent that supposedly God gifted the apostles with the ability to do miracles, which we see recorded in the book of Acts. But when the apostles died, the gifts of miracles and healing and and tongues and um, words of prophecy and supernatural knowledge and those types of things, that when the apostles died, so did the gifts. I want to show you clearly and biblically the foolishness of that argument. Number one, if that was true, then why are the workings of the Spirit happening in the Corinthian church without the apostles there? Number two, if that was true, then why in the world doesn't the Apostle Paul just say, hey, guys, what you're doing isn't real. We're the only ones that can do it. And as soon as we're dead and gone, the gifts are going to cease, so knock it off. That's not what he said. What he said was, here is how it should work. We see in the book of Galatians, chapter, I believe chapter 2, it might be chapter 3, but in the book of Galatians, Paul says and asks of the Galatians, who is it that works miracles amongst you? Speaking of the Holy Spirit, he asks the question, can you continue in the flesh what began in the Spirit? But he asks the question, who is it that works miracles among you? We see that in the Galatian church, miracles were happening at the works of the people within the church. And so, here is what we need to understand about God's divine design for the church. It is God's desire and will that the gifts of the Spirit here, the manifestations of the Spirit, that healing, that miracles, that signs and wonders, that uh, the gift of knowledge, the gift of wisdom, that the, the gift of prophecy, it is His will that these things actually happen within the church. And His Bible, His Word, clearly tells us how it should work. Amen. Now let me show you the other side of the coin. The other side of the coin believes that we should expect these things to happen all the time and that if they don't happen, there's something wrong with us. We don't have faith. We must not believe in God. There must be something wrong with us. That if you say something the right way and have the right faith, that every time somehow mysteriously perfect healing and perfect wholeness and, and wealth and everything's going to come, and at times they are so desperate to even to, to, to try to prove their point that they fake these gifts. Yes, these gifts can be faked. Healing can be faked. I won't use names, but I have seen people knocked out in the spirit. National television. Knocked out so hard that when they hit the ground, they're looking at the camera to make sure they can pull the shirt down just in case. And then they're back out. Give me a break. Give me a break. And you know what happens is, because there's a counterfeit to everything, we see, we see hocus pocus. We know it's fake. In our spirit, we know it's wrong. And, and, and in such a 
desperate measure to do away with what is faith. This is what most have done with the pastors. These things should never happen anymore. Just don't expect them to happen. If they are happening, it's fake and it's wrong. I'm here to tell you this morning, both sides are wrong. Both sides are wrong. It is somewhere in the middle. Somewhere in the middle. And I want to tell you what I believe this morning about the gifts real briefly and what they are. And the fact is, yes, they should work in the church. We see uh, the Word of Wisdom. What is the Word of Wisdom? More than, more than likely, the Word of Wisdom is when God gives supernatural revelation about the, how to handle a circumstance. About how to uh, counsel or advise somebody in a situation. It could be something very specific about how to spend a certain uh, sum of money. It could be something very specific about um, how to go to a person and talk to a person at a specific moment in their life. But the Word of Wisdom deals with using uh, what God has given us for the purpose of helping others. Now, what is the Word of Knowledge? It's very similar to the Word of Wisdom, but knowledge is a word that deals with facts. And I would imagine, and here's what I believe about the gifts of the Spirit. Many people function in them and don't realize that they are. They don't know. They don't realize, wow, that was the Spirit using the gift of knowledge through me at that exact moment. What is the gift of knowledge? It is the revelation of divine facts. Something you would not know otherwise unless the Spirit of God revealed it to you. It's very similar to the mother who wakes up at 2 o'clock. There's not a single noise in the house. There's nothing going on, but she knows her child's sick. And she gets up and she runs downstairs. And sure enough, if she didn't get down there, something bad would have happened. We call it... Some call it luck, some call it intuition, but I call it the gift of knowledge. It is when God gives supernatural revelation. Now notice this, this is important. It's always for the profit of all. Are you with me so far? Because it's for the profit of all, God's not going to give you at that particular moment the gift of knowledge if it's not going to profit everyone. And so these particular manifestations in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 are much different than the motivational gifts in Romans 12. In Romans 12, those motivational gifts are the gifts that we function out of all the time. But if you have been, for example, there have been times in my life that God has used the gift of knowledge in me. The Spirit has brought it to light. And God showed me supernatural revelation facts that I could not have known otherwise unless God told me. But because I functioned in that gift, I don't have the ability to just walk up and read your mind and use my gift of uh, the revelation of knowledge and figure out anything I want. I believe the same is true about the manifestation of healing. I don't personally believe in the idea that someone has the gift of healing. Somebody that had the gift of healing was the Apostle Paul. He functioned in it many times. Matter of fact, the Bible tells us in the book of Acts that the Apostle Paul sent out handkerchiefs. And handkerchiefs that he touched, other people touched and they were healed. But we also know that the Apostle Paul himself got a sickness in his eyes and he was so sick that he couldn't leave Asia and had to stay and preach to the Galatians. What happened there? We also learn that the Apostle Paul had somebody within his own ministry team that traveled with him that was so sick almost unto death. I believe that God's divine ways are higher than ours. 
Sometimes God chooses to heal, sometimes He doesn't. Sometimes God says, I have a purpose for this. We can see with Galatians that Paul said the reason he stayed and preached to them was because of the infirmity in his eyes. And that had he not been sick and had he been able to travel, the, the Galatians would have not got the gospel from the Apostle Paul. And so in this situation, we can see that God actually allowed a sickness to occur, that God chose not to heal it, because had He healed it, Paul would have went somewhere else and the Galatians wouldn't have heard the Gospel. It proves to us this, that just because a person functions in the gift of healing doesn't mean they can come out and heal everybody that's sick right now. Their will as if they're God. You have to be led by the Spirit. There are times... In my life, where God has functioned in me through the gift of healing. In the last eight years, I would say maybe eight times. But it was supernatural, miracle-working healing. I'm not talking they got better as time went on and the cough syrup finally kicked in and they started feeling better and three days later, bless God, they were healed. I'm talking immediate, miraculous healing at that moment of migraines. At that moment of pain. I don't know if she's here this morning. Is Candy back here? She's in the bathroom. Candy Beck was diagnosed with terminal cancer. She had a couple of brain surgeries. Finally, they were they said it was back even worse and it wasn't any point in doing. I believe it was a third brain it would have been a third brain surgery, is that correct? They said it wouldn't have been we did two brain surgeries, you tried everything, it's getting worse and worse and worse. There's no point in doing a third brain surgery, and they just put her on you know, she's terminal. She's going to die probably six months. Now, we had prayed for her a lot of times. I want to, I've actually never told this story publicly. We had prayed for her a lot of times. And there's a, there's a purpose in praying. There's a purpose in asking God to, to, to move and, and to heal and to have His way. We ought to pray. But I'm telling you, it's different when the Spirit of God tells us to do something. It's just different. I remember she had been about three months after she had been diagnosed with terminal cancer. We were waiting for her to pass on or whatever to happen. We were, we were still praying. But she was up here praying by herself, and I was right there. And as I was sitting right there, I felt God say to me, Lay your hands on her. Pray this cancer out of her. She's going to live. And can I tell you something? I've learned to be obedient to God, so I did it. But can I also share something with you? I was scared enough to say, to not tell anybody, because I thought, what if that wasn't God? I was, I, I was nervous enough, I wasn't going to tell nobody that, just in case it wasn't God. The cancer is gone. Gone, gone, gone. It's not just getting smaller, she's not just doing better, it's gone. She continued to live, she didn't die, time went on. After about a full year, they thought, hey, let's, we need to figure out what's going on. Let's take another scan. It's gone. A couple weeks ago, or almost a couple months ago now, she had a mini stroke, and they went in and thought, well, maybe it's related. They did the scans. Guess what? Cancer's still gone. Because God still heals. He is still a miracle-working God, and the power and the miracles of God should happen through the church. That's you and I, Okay? But I, I, I want to share that exact example. I can point to a few others. I'm going to stop and move on from there. To prove the point that the gift of healing, that these gifts are not something we just do at will. 
The Spirit of God must lead us to do something, and then we must be obedient to God. Okay, will you go ahead and pull up the first um, image for me here in a second? I want to show you something to move on quickly that I'm hoping will in some way make sense of this. This is not actually um, my making. Um, I personally would differ with it a little bit, but I thought it was good enough to use it. This is from Chip Ingram. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, which is where we're at, this is the NIV version, we have different gifts, different service, and different working. Every time, it is a different word that's used. The word gift is the word charismatic. It's the word that's used in Romans chapter 12, and we dealt with that last week. And these are the things that motivate us. That prophetic gift, the gift of serving, teaching, encouragement, giving, leadership, and mercy. If you weren't here last week, you need to get the sermon because I'm not going to preach it again, but you need to get the sermon and understand these are the things that motivate us. Each of us have a primary motivational gift. Quickly, on the left column, I was also asked, can we not function in more than just one? The answer is yes. And a deeply spiritual Christian should function in most of those motivational gifts. It will t- if someone's primary motivational gift is mercy, probably the last gift they'll begin to function in is, is, is that prophetic gift. And vice versa. But as we mature, we should have an element of all of these things in our life. We should be ready to teach, to serve, to encourage, to give, to to lead those that uh, have not come to where we are yet. So you can function in more than one gift, but there is a primary motivational gift. And then you have what we would call offices. And I'm going to deal with offices next week. Offices are in the middle. It's the word... uh, Diaconian, which is where we get our name deacon for. These are particular services. Apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, teachers. Um, and then see here's where he has workers of miracles, gift of healing. Those two I somewhat disagree with. Helping tongues and administration. However, what we do see is we have a motivational gift. We have offices that God calls us to. Some are pastors, some are teachers, some are helpers. And then we have manifestations. This word is the word energomaton, which is where we get our word energy from. And this third column, I believe that as spiritual Christians, anybody in the middle column should be able to work in these manifestations in the right column. In other words, the gift of healing isn't just for someone who has the gift of healing. The word of knowledge isn't just for somebody that has the word of knowledge. That as the Spirit leads, in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, that as the Spirit leads, and verse 11 says, He distributes to each one individually as He wills. Our goal is to be Spirit-led believers. If you remember in week number one, I had a five-minute piece at the beginning of it that dealt with the difference between the flesh and the Spirit. And we must learn to yield to the Spirit and get our instructions from God. The spiritual believer who walks in the Spirit and gets his instructions from the Spirit. Go ahead and go back to our um, the deal here. The spiritual believer should be able, as the Spirit wills, and when there is a need, and when it is profitable for all, to work in any one of these. If you are a born-again believer here this morning, I believe you could heal if God wills and God works through you and the Spirit leads you to pray over someone for healing. You can heal. 
These are the gifts of the Spirit, not particular gifts that any individual has. And so, whether it, we'll deal next week with apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, teachers. Maybe we'll get to it today. Whether you're any of those things doesn't change whether or not you can function in the manifestations of the Spirit. Okay. So, here we see the overall makeup of the church. That everything we do is done through the Spirit. The motivational gifts come from the Spirit. The callings, the service come from the Spirit. The manifestations come from the Spirit. We can do nothing without the Spirit of God. The true church is a church that is in tune to the Spirit of God, that listens to the Spirit of God, that obeys the Spirit of God, and that allows the Spirit of God to have freedom to reign and rule in our lives. That's what the true church is built to look like. Now, note that the Spirit is the source of every single gift. The callings, the fruit, etc. We can do nothing without the Spirit. We all have a role. Again, these admonitions are to us, the church, the true church. One more time, go ahead and pull that up. I want you to see something. I think somebody here this morning needs this. One more time. In every single one of these areas, prophecy, service, teaching, encouragement, giving, leadership, and mercy. Notice, every one of those can be counterfeit. It's not just the gifts of the Spirit that can be counterfeit. Everything the Spirit does can be counterfeit. Apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, teachers, workers of miracles, gifts of healing, tongues, administration, word of wisdom, word of knowledge, faith, healing... Miracles, prophecy, discernment, tongues, interpretation of tongues. Every single thing can be counterfeited. Now what I want to say to you this morning is, don't allow the counterfeit stuff you've seen to cause you to turn away from God and to reject the truth of God's Word. Don't allow something you've seen that you knew was wrong, that you knew wasn't right, that somebody did under the banner of being some great Christian or some great spiritual person. Don't you allow that to cause you to not believe the Word of God. Don't you allow that to cause you to misinterpret the Word of God. And don't you allow that to cause you to have a wrong view of God and how God works. Because all of these things do happen. They are real. What about tongues? I'm going to go ahead and deal with that. Instead of just skipping over. What is tongues? If you're new to the church and you don't know, there is a pretty big divide over what tongues is in the church. There are some who say, as I mentioned earlier, that tongues have passed. That there is no such thing as tongues. And anybody that does it is crazy and and just blubbering words of nothingness. Then there's those on the other side who say, oh yes, tongues are very real. But most on the other side who say that will argue that you have not received what they call the baptism of the Holy Spirit unless you speak in tongues. There are some that go so far as to say that if you don't speak in tongues, you're not even saved. What I will say again is, both are wrong. You know, as people, we want something so black and white. That's what we want. We want it simple. Give me two choices. So it cracks me up about our Disheartens is probably a better word for it, about our the political stuff going on in America. I listen, I'm probably shouldn't have even said that. But it is ridiculous. It is not as as far out there as what everybody says. It's not. 
And in, a, in, in a, trying to get people to come to your side, you paint, you paint stuff so extreme that people are afraid of it. This is true of tongues, of gifts of the Spirit, of this whole thing. Both sides are wrong. What is tongues? Well, in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, let's go ahead and look there if we're going to deal with it. Verse 2, 1 Corinthians chapter 14, through 15. Let's look at verse 2. For he who speaks in a tongue does not speak to men, but to God. For no one understands him. However, in the Spirit he speaks mysteries. Okay, so we see here that the idea of speaking in tongue is one who speaks to God. It's the idea of a prayer language. The, uh, the Bible does show us two different... Um, Types of tongues, one in which somebody speaks and somebody interprets, and the other in which a person prays to God. Here we see, what, what is it when you speak to God? That's prayer. Okay? Now, the verse 5, I wish all spoke with tongues, but even more that you prophesy. For he who prophesies is greater than he who speaks with tongues. Unless, indeed, he interprets that the church may receive edification. Now, Paul says in verse 6, But now, brethren, I come, if I come to you speaking with tongues, what shall I profit you unless I speak to you either by revelation, by knowledge, by prophesying, or by teaching? Look at verse 18. I thank my God I speak with tongues more than you all, And then verse 19, this is an important teaching about tongues. Yet in the church. That's what we're talking about, right? We're talking about church government. We're talking about God's divine design for the church. Yet in the church. I would rather speak five words with my understanding. Now, let me ask you a question. You've got to understand the language of the Apostle Paul here. I don't know how many words I've got out in the last 15 minutes, but it's a whole lot more than five. What can you say with five words? The answer is nothing. Paul said, I'd rather say nothing than to speak in tongues in church. Now, that's the Word of God. He doesn't say that speaking in tongues is false. He doesn't say that speaking in tongues has no place. He doesn't say that speaking in tongues should not happen. But that he would rather speak five words with my understanding. Why? That I may teach others also than 10,000 words in a tongue. Verse 14 and 15, and then I'm going to comment on them quickly and we'll move on. Actually, verse 13. Therefore, let him who speaks in a tongue pray that he may interpret. For if I pray in a tongue, see, there's the idea of praying in a tongue versus speaking in a tongue. If I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my understanding is unfruitful. What is the conclusion then? Now, I want you to know, here's the classic question from those who believe that, this, that we should not pray in tongues anymore. They say this, do you understand exactly what you're saying? Those who speak in tongues or pray in tongues say, well, not exactly. Their conclusion is, well, then that's stupid, don't do it. That doesn't make any sense. But is that Paul's conclusion? Because Paul asks the question. He says, if I pray in the Spirit, my understanding is somewhat unfruitful. I don't fully understand. So what's the conclusion? He says, then I will pray with the Spirit and I will pray with my understanding. 
I will sing with the Spirit and I will also sing with the understanding. Alright. A couple points here on tongues. Some of you understand why we're a non-denominational church when I teach this. It's not as easy as what we want it to be and it's not one way or the other. The Pentecostals believe that you have to be Speak in tongues is the evidence of being baptized in the Holy Spirit. And if you ask them the question, matter of fact, what does it say? Let's go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. I want to show you the Word of God here. Verse 30. Let's go ahead and do it. Verse 29. Are all apostles? What is the answer? Obviously, no. Are all prophets? No. Are all teachers? No. Are all workers of miracles? No. Do all have gifts of healings? No. Do all speak with tongues? No. Do all interpret? No. Okay. Here's what they say. Well, but that's talking about speaking in tongues and having someone interpret it. That's talking about giving a message in tongues. And I would say, correctamundo, you're right. That's exactly what that's talking about. And the Bible does teach that shouldn't happen. But they will say, However, everybody should pray in tongues. Based upon what? Acts chapter 2. When the Spirit fell, they spoke in tongues. But Acts chapter 2 isn't them praying in tongues. Here they confuse the gifts. In Acts chapter 2, they spoke and everyone heard in their own language. So they point to what happened in Acts chapter 2, where clearly everybody was speaking a message in tongues. And then somehow skid around this verse and say, well, this verse is saying everybody doesn't do that, but everybody should pray in tongues. Here's what the Bible doesn't, here's what the Bible teaches us. The Bible teaches us that there's two different types of tongues. One is when you give a message and somebody understands it in their language, which was very necessary, especially in this particular day and age when the gospel is going out, because there were multiple people with many different, um, uh, languages, and so it was necessary at times that God would give somebody with the ability to give a message in that language. However, not everybody does that. It teaches that if in the church somebody wants to get up and give a message in tongues, there needs to be an interpreter present, someone who has that gift of interpretation. And if there is not somebody who has that gift, who has functioned in that gift, the Spirit would never lead anybody to get up and give a message of tongues in the church. But all that said, it is still a real gift. It still functions in our day and age. I've seen it a couple of times. It's not incredibly necessary in our American culture where we pretty much all speak the same language. The prayer language of speaking in tongues where Paul says, I pray in a tongue. Where Paul says, when I pray in a tongue, my understanding is unfruitful. So what am I going to do? I'm going to pray in the Spirit. And I'm going to pray in my understanding. That's his conclusion. Praying in tongues, that prayer language, if you want to call that, is a real thing. But that said, even in the church, if you're going to be praying in a way somebody can hear what you have to say, you need to be praying either in English or silently. Paul said, I would rather speak five words in a known tongue than 10,000 in the context of the church. And as you see, it's not so black and white. Tongues is a real thing. 
But those who believe that everybody in church ought to be standing up, shouting in tongues, uh-uh. Paul says it's confusing, and it is confusing. Imagine an unbeliever who doesn't know anything about God, Paul says, coming in and just seeing a bunch of people saying something in some other language that they can't understand. It's confusing. I know the gift is real. I've seen it function. And it makes me nervous sometimes when I'm in some all-out church where people are up just abusing the gift. So here's the point. The gifts are real. Healing's real. We should expect God to heal. Miracles are real. The gift of knowledge is real. The gift of wisdom is real. The gift of tongues is real. The gift of interpretation of tongues. These are real gifts. And they function in the true church of the living God. Okay. Last thing I want to say on this is all of us have a part. Every single one of us. We have a part. We have a role to play in the body of Christ. Every single one of us. Matter of fact, this is um, in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. We're already there. Paul always comes back to this theme when he's dealing with the gifts of the Spirit in the church. What does he say in verse 12? For as the body is one and has many members, but all the members of that one body, being many, are one body, so also is Christ. For by one Spirit we were baptized into one body. It is the Spirit that has brought us into the body. Every one of us has a responsibility to be used of God and to do our role being led by the Spirit within the church. Alright, let's move on to church government. I have, over the last two and a half weeks now, we have looked at the life of the church. We've looked at the source of life as the Spirit. We have looked at what the Bible teaches the Spirit does through the church. Now I want to move themes, and I want to look at the government of the church. How does it work? What is its structure? How is it uh, designed to work? And what does that mean to you? And what does it mean to me? Let's look at Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 and 12. Just a little side note as you're turning there. In verse 4, Paul uses there is one body and one spirit. He always references the body when he begins to talk about the different positions within the body. Uh, Actually, verse 11, 12, and 13. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11 says this, And He Himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers, for the equipping of the saints, for the work of ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, till we all come to unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a perfect man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Alright, verse 11, He Himself gave. We see that these positions are God-given. We might call them callings. Something that God calls a person to. These are uh, positions within the church of people that are overseers. Let's deal with the idea of apostles. There are such a thing as modern-day apostles. Let me tell you the difference between a modern-day apostle and the apostles of the Old Testament. There were twelve official apostles of Christ. 
And in order to be an apostle of Christ, you had to actually live when he lived and to be an eyewitness to his resurrection from the dead. In order to be an apostle with that authority, that's how you had to be. But that said, in the New Testament, I believe, I I thought about trying to find him this morning, thought I might bore you to death, but I believe there are 23 total named apostles in the New Testament alone. And those are just the ones they gave us the names of. The word apostle in and of itself simply means this, one who is sent. That's all it means. Now, if you take it in that context of what he's talking about here in Ephesians chapter 4, someone who is sent, there are a lot of apostles. The ministry gift of being an apostle is someone who has the ministry gift and the calling of God on their life to go and start a new work. See, that's what the apostle Paul did. That's what made him such a great apostle. He goes to Corinth. What's he do? He starts a church there. And he has the, he, he builds it up and he gets pastors up underneath of him and he helps the structure of the church go. Corinth has a church. And, but because he's apostle, you know what he does? He goes somewhere else. He goes over to Ephesus. Starts a church up there, gets the thing going, gets it building. Paul started lots of churches because he had that apostolic gift. Not every person who's called to be a pastor has the capacity to go and, and start whatever they think they want to start. It has to be led by the Spirit. Not every person who's a great evangelist has the ability to go and start a new work. And so, in the sense of God gave some apostles, these are people amongst us, these are people within the church that God gives the vision and the, and the spiritual wisdom and the strength and fortitude to go and start new works. We see apostles. He gave some prophets. This is a New Testament word for prophets. I've already dealt with this in week one, or no, last week when we talked about prophecy. This is somebody who who tells the Word of God. Someone who has ability to discern the times and, and to hear from God the message to God's people at that given time. But a true prophet's message will always line up with the Word of God. This is not somebody that just has the ability to speak whatever they speak and their words are more powerful than yours. And if you'll have them speak something over you, you'll become wealthy and rich. That's not what this is talking about when it talks about the gift of prophecy and prophets within the church. These are those who, like all the prophets of the Bible, true prophets, these are those who hear God's message to God's people and relay it to God's people in a very special and timely, culturally sensitive fashion. We see some evangelists. The word evangelism deals with the idea of winning souls. This is a gift. Now, while all of us have some form of responsibility, there are those that they're just great evangelists. You know, there are some folks that... We just had Danny Ledbetter in for revival. There are some people that just don't like his style of preaching. There are some people it's just hard to endure, they would say. But Danny has won more souls in one single sermon than most of those people have their entire life. You know why? He's an evangelist. That's what he does. As a pastor, you want to know this? Can I tell you the truth? As a pastor who has a heart to shepherd God's people and to build you up and encourage you, sometimes when he is laying it down, I'm thinking, oh, take it easy on him, Dan. Take it easy on him. 
But you know what? I was saved listening to him preach. I was saved when Danny Ledbetter was using his gift of evangelism. And there are those that God gifts within the body for that specific need. It's a need, isn't it? It's a very important need. I hope what you're beginning to see is that God's divine design is so incredibly diverse. And that we need all parts. And that we need to understand that where I might be strong in a certain area, I need to function in that area. And I need to let people who are strong in other areas quit rubbing me the wrong way because they see ministry in a different lens than I see ministry. We need it all. It all has a role. There's a, there's a place for every one of us. But evangelism is that specific gift to win the lost. And then we see some pastors and teachers. In the actual Greek, the word pastors and teachers is one word. It's best translated pastor-teacher. This person, this calling, is someone whose overall role is the shepherding of God's people. It is the care of the church. It is teaching them and feeding them the Word of God so that they can, in turn, mature into the men and women that God's designing them to be. I want you to notice an an amazing phrase in verse 12. So we've got apostles, we've got prophets, we've got evangelists, we've got pastors, teachers. We would say, that's ministry. Those are ministries. But look what he says in verse 12. For the equipping of the saints for the work of ministry. Who does the work of ministry? The saints. For the equipping of the saints for the work of ministry. You, as saints, every single one of us have a role in ministry. God calls these certain positions within the church to help us be people of ministry. This is God's design. For the edifying of the body till we all come to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to be a perfect man. These are callings. They are not professions. You cannot go to college and decide you're going to be a pastor. It won't work. God gave some. You have to be called. And it is important that the church has called leaders who have answered God's call on their life, who have said, okay, yes, Lord, send me. And next week when we deal with spiritual authority, you're going to see these people are people just like you and I. But yet God has placed them as leaders and authorities in our life. It's noon, but I want to spend about seven minutes and get this next thing done uh, so that next week we can pick up with spiritual authority. So while we do have these specific apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, teachers, we've looked at a bunch of specific motivational gifts, ministry gifts, and manifestations, I want to show you that the Word of God deals with leadership in the church in two very broad categories, elders and deacons. Okay, let's look at Philippians 1.1. You can just pull the first slide up if you want to turn with me to Philippians 1.1. Paul and Timothy, bondservants of Jesus Christ, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi with the bishops and deacons. Notice, all the saints, go ahead and just leave the, the one up if you would for me. 
There we go. All the saints is all of us. We're the saints. He's writing to the saints and to the bishops and deacons. The word bishop is a word for overseer. Go ahead and go to the next uh, number two. I put this up because I didn't want to bore you to death. If you're interested, you can get this from me and, and write all these down. But we see the term elder, shepherd, and overseer used interchangeably in the New Testament to define leadership. The word elder is used in Acts 11.30, 14.23, 15.2-23, Acts 16.4, Acts 20.17, Acts 21.18, 1 Timothy chapter 5, 17 through 19, Titus chapter 1, verse 5, James 5, 14, 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 1 through 5. I rolled through that to show you this is a, a general theme in the New Testament. It's not just a one passage. Elders is the word that was often used to describe the overseers, the leaders of the church. Another term is shepherd in Acts 20. Now, the same group of men, Acts 20, 17, Acts 20, verse 28, and Acts 20, uh, and also verse 28, we see shepherd and overseer. Go ahead and leave that up, Jim. But if you want to turn with me to Acts chapter 20, I want to show you a place in the Bible that these words are used interchangeably. Acts chapter 20. We'll read verse 17 first. From Miletus, he sent to Ephesus and called for the elders of the church. Now, there's a meeting. I'm not going to make you read the whole meeting, but we're in a meeting with the elders of the church. Now, look at verse 28. This is what Paul says to the elders of the church. Therefore, take heed to yourselves and to all the flock, among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. So we see here that elders, shepherds, and overseers are the same thing, and their responsibility is to oversee and shepherd the church of God. These are men who are leaders. Now, elder is a word that encompasses many different possible positions. In other words, a pastor is going to be an elder. He doesn't necessarily become an elder the moment he answers the call to pastor. But there will be a time as he matures in his role of pastor and has his time of maturing in front of the people, and he's not a new convert, that he will become an elder. It's possible that an evangelist within a church could be an elder. It's possible that somebody who's... Um, main gift is teaching, and they're a teacher within the church, could be an elder. And so an elder is a much bigger word that encompasses many of the ministry gifts, motivational gifts, and roles within the church, but it is the main word that the Bible uses to refer to those who are our overseers, those who have the responsibility of protecting us, of teaching us, of keeping us safe, of leading us in God's ways. Okay, next slide. Where we're at. In Acts chapter 6, the apostles were, um, who are also called elders, the apostles were getting overloaded with uh, the work of trying to figure out who needed uh, so many allotments of food and, and which widows needed taken care of. And this is where 
in the New Testament, we see the idea of deacons come into role. Now, we see that they instituted deacons in Acts chapter 6, but the reason why is that it is not desirable for us to neglect the Word of God in order to serve tables, but we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of, of the Word. Elders are those who are devoted to prayer and the ministry of the Word, the teaching of the Word. That is their main number one priority. It's not the only thing they do, but it, is, it has to be their main number one overall priority in the church is to feed God's sheep. And when serving tables or um, going and, and, and meeting people's individual needs becomes so uh, vast because the church has grown that, the, that they're unable to be devoted to studying the Word of God and being prepared to teach the Word of God, in comes the need for deacons. And we see this instituted in Acts chapter 7, the first seven deacons that were ever um, actually instituted as deacons. The difference between a deacon and an elder is that a deacon does not have to be apt to teach. He does not have to be qualified yet to do all the things an elder is responsible for. However, he is well qualified and a spiritual man within the church and his responsibility is to help the elders with the workload that's keeping the elders from being devoted to prayer and the Word. Alright, last slide. Elders are to be examples, examples and mentors. In 1 Timothy 4.11, they are told to set an example for the believers in speech, in life, in love, in faith, and in purity. True elders have to be leaders. They're not just people that get up and say, do as I say. But they're people who say, watch my life. That's what Paul said many times. Watch my life. And do what I do. Follow me. I do what I teach. I am a follower of what the things I tell you to follow. And follow me as I follow Christ. We see that they mentor, train faithful men in 2 Timothy. And this is the people's response to the elders that God has placed over them. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 12 and 13. Respect those who work hard among you, who are over you in the Lord, and who admonish you. Hold them in the highest regard and love because of their work. To respect those who work hard among you, who God has placed over you. This is God's design for the church. As, as our church is growing and maturing, we're going to have a need, if you will, for more elders. It's one of the things that is difficult to grasp. You're a new church and you're growing and you're, and you're, you're coming to life. But a lot of us are new. We don't have a lot of seasoned elders who have been serving God for extended periods of time without fault or, or, or failure. And so we've had to diligently ask God to, to use what, what He's got to work with. To use a pastor who had only been saved for five and a half years. And God has been diligent to that. But I tell you this. As we continue to grow and mature, the reason we're doing this study is because we've got to get ready to cross the next threshold. Numbers are down this morning and it's still pretty crowded. We're missing about 40 folks this morning and it's still pretty crowded. What are we going to do? I know this. We have to get ready. To cross the threshold. We have to understand God's design. We need to pray for those that do function as elders. You need to pray for me as your pastor. You need to pray for Kevin as your deacon. You need to pray for Branson as God's raising him up and, 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 and maturing him and molding him into a, a time and place when he can step into one of those positions. You need to pray for our teachers. You need to pray for 
uh, our church as a whole. I mean, God gave some for the equipping of the saints of ministry. We all have a ministry. We need to understand God's design. Next week, I'm going to deal with spiritual authority. I'm going to go ahead and ask our worship team to come and just sing one last final song of invitation. Next week, I'm going to deal with authority in the church. What does God say about it? What does it mean to be submissive to our leaders? At what cost? How does God deal with them? But as our worship team comes this morning, I want to, I do this every Sunday morning. And I know I haven't preached on salvation. But are you part of the church? I don't mean are you a member. I'm not asking when you raised up in church. I'm not asking if you believe in Jesus. Have you truly surrendered to God's will for your life and said, God, I submit myself to you and I give you my life and I will be part of your body? Maybe there's somebody here today that when I spoke about the counterfeit and that which is fake, that really resonated with you. Well, can I ask you to be honest with yourself, ma'am, sir? Are you allowing that to keep you from God? Are you allowing the fact that the devil made some counterfeit to keep you from the real thing? Stop it this morning. Say enough is enough. Surrender your heart to God. Surrender your heart to the Lord. Father, I pray that you move across this room right now in Jesus' name. God, I believe I've said what you'd have me to say this morning. I just ask God you'd finish whatever it is you may have started in our hearts, Lord. God, I know you brought everybody here this morning for a very distinct reason, God, that you speak to us individually as you will. And Lord, I just pray, God, if you've dealt with anybody's heart this morning, God, if anybody wants to just come before you, praise you, thank you, pray, ask for help, guidance, direction, or maybe even to surrender their heart to you this morning to be saved. Lord, I pray that now, God, you move on hearts to do that as we sing a song of invitation.